Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Burr. Today, with the price of meat rising quickly, we find out how plant-based alternatives compare. And it turns out they're still significantly more expensive. We talked to a woman behind a new and very personal documentary, documenting a decade in the lives of Syrian migrant workers in Lebanon and the revolution, civil war, and refugee crisis that changes their lives and her film. With the first Canadian Hydrogen Convention wrapping up in Edmonton this week, we look at the hype on hydrogen and try to separate myth from reality. But first, with a chronic shortage of family doctors in this country, new data suggests medical school graduates are shying away from becoming family physicians. We find out why and what could be done about it. Let's begin with a problem we're seeing right across the country these days, family doctors. Who has one? So many of us don't have one. And new numbers show the problem could be getting worse across the country because they indicate that fewer graduates from med school are choosing family medicine as a discipline, despite those huge shortages across the country. For instance, here in BC, it's a huge deal. In Victoria, where I am over the past year, at least three doctors have left urgent and primary care centers. Three clinics have closed, leaving hundreds of people without primary care. The topic has even had tempers flaring in the B.C. legislature this week. On Monday, Premier John Horgan had to apologize for swearing when answering a question from opposition MLA Trevor Halford uh, from Surrey-White Rock about the province's family doctor crisis, which has left nearly a million British Columbians without their own doctor. When will this Premier step up in this House and give British Columbians the assurance they need that they will be supported by a family doctor. Honorable Speaker, the opposition characterizes the opposition characterizes cooperative federalism, making our country work by ensuring that there's adequate. But do you want to hear it, man? Do you want to hear it? Or do you just want to hear your voice. Why don't you go in the bathroom and talk to yourself in there? Because you don't want to hear answers in this place. Seriously. The Canada Health Transfer is fundamental to health care in British Columbia. It's fundamental. And it has been for generations. Do you care? Do you really care? Or do you want to hear yourself? Do you want a headline or do you want action? Uh, Yeah, it's a heated debate out here. But you scan the news and you see similar stories right across the country, perhaps without the swearing premier. Uh, But whether it be rural, urban, suburban, same shortages everywhere. Let me know, do you have a family doctor? If not, what happened? How hard has it been to find a new one if you've lost yours? Let me know, 877-399-9898. That's 877-399-9898. We'll share those responses uh, through the show. Let me know who you are and where you are and what your family doctor situation is like. Well, Dr. Brady Bouchard is a Saskatchewan-based family physician and president of the Canadian College of Family Physicians. He used to work in Victoria, believe it or not, but went back home to his home province. He's the first to admit he didn't go back because of the better, better weather in Saskatchewan. Um, and he joins me now to talk about this problem. Dr. Bouchard, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. So, you know, this is an certainly there is this idea that there's a desperate need for family physicians out there. Uh, and we're seeing data that would suggest that medical students at least are reluctant to enter, uh, enter that, that side of the profession right now. Is, is that the case? Is that what you're seeing? Yeah. Uh, well, certainly the, the first round of our residency match. So it's a, it's a national match each year. Um, uh, there's multiple rounds to it, uh, but the first round does show a worrying trend uh, over recent years to, 
to uh, decreasing preference by medical students uh, into family medicine. Um, uh, we certainly don't know all those reasons. We haven't asked all those medical students, but um, we have some guesses at it. Um, and it's uh, certainly multifactorial. There's there's lots of lots of pressures on on family practice and and healthcare in general right now. What would some of those hypotheses be? Because I know often we read about the crisis in in family family care, at least, or with family physicians really being retirement driven. But this would suggest that that's not really the case. So, what do you think is going on for those looking ahead to their careers and thinking uh, that not well, that certainly won't be my first choice. Yeah, for sure. Um, certainly, uh, retirements or pending retirements would be one factor in it. Uh, we do have a, a bulge in the workforce that's uh, that's close to, to retirement right now or delaying retirements, um, uh, feeling uh, obligations to, to maintain their patients uh, panel uh, throughout COVID. Um, uh, but there's there's more pressing uh, matters. Uh, one of them to speak uh, of uh, that's particularly relevant in BC is is uh, fee for service practice. The way we're paid, um, most physicians in in Canada are still paid under that fee for service model, which encourages throughput. So you're paid on a per patient basis. You run your own business as well, so that means hiring your own staff, paying your own overhead, your own commercial rents, getting your own medical supplies. Um, and as I think we all know, uh, certainly in our urban areas in the country, Victoria, Vancouver, uh, Toronto, to name a few, um, there's huge pressures on real estate, uh, on salaries and inflationary pressures. Um, and the fees that you get from the government have not changed or certainly don't change that fast. Um, so it's become untenable even just financially, but there's bigger pressures on, on family medicine as well. Um, uh, just the, the enjoyment of the day-to-day work. So paperwork burdens have increased um, administrative in, in every way. Um, more uh, documentation needed uh, for insurance forms, for communications with specialists. There's big delays in getting um, uh, patients into specialists and having to redirect uh, referrals. Um, uh, and we don't necessarily have that uh, support or you're hiring that own administrative support um, so certainly we're getting the message from our learners right now, our residents and our medical students, uh, that they want to work in a team-based setting. Uh, they don't want to be running a business. They want to focus on uh, keeping patients well, um, helping patients with their health care. Um, and they want a team around them to support them, which includes administrative professionals, but it includes you know, nurses, uh, clinical pharmacists, nurse practitioners, and others. Um, which could really adapt to the community as well. Some some communities different need different have different needs for a team, um, but the main message is they want to focus on patient care. I mean, you chose family medicine. Uh, you've been doing this for a while. Uh, is is the, are those legitimate concerns? Has has it really become as much running your own business? And as there are a lot of paperwork, do you not get to see the, the, the patients as much as you would like to? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's different across the country. Of course, we have 10 plus different healthcare systems. So not every prevalence is the same. Um, certainly, it seems in BC, we're seeing more pressures, uh, or it's more acute um, than uh, elsewhere in the country right now, and urban areas uh, more than rural, although we're also short uh, in, in rural family medicine, uh, of course, as well. Um, and it's a little bit like the frog in the pot that's boiling. It's It's been a gradual trend over time. Um, and if you're in it every day, you don't necessarily notice. Um, but our learners notice and they see the comparison between family physicians and family practice and other specialties. And and are, I suspect they're choosing appropriately, even though family medicine is a really rewarding career. I don't regret it in the slightest. We have a broad scope of practice. There's lots we're able to do. Um, uh, but those other pressures are are making it less desirable. 
what could I, I mean? I realize each jurisdiction is different, but what would could be done in the short term to try to convince people that family medicine is how how you describe it? It can be a very rewarding and very hands on and very impactful um, specialty, uh, and certainly one that is desperately needed. Yeah, for sure. Um, so our uh, college has the idea of the patient's medical home, which is that team-based practice. There's lots of facets to it. Um, but I think the immediate uh, um, uh, changes that need to be made, um, uh, certainly in the BC context, is really around releasing those those financial pressures on physicians. It's not even necessarily about paying them more. It's about covering some of the overhead costs that are going through the roof. Um, so having structured you know, health authority clinics where physicians can come in and work um, they don't have to take their work home with them. They don't have to run a business, uh, I think, would be an fairly immediate changes that could be made um, that would attract uh, medical students uh, and residents to uh, to enter into family practice and to stay in B.C. Um, you know, uh, B.C.'s got beautiful weather. There's no reason that we shouldn't have enough family physicians to to uh, care for all the patients in the population. What uh, what do you tell people now i mean there is there is now this almost desperate need to try to find family physicians i know so many people who don't have one not just here but elsewhere uh, what do you tell patients these days about being patient so to speak and, and and looking for a family physician how to approach one how to find one um yeah absolutely um i don't think there's any short-term solutions to finding a family physician uh, on an individual patient basis and and i and i i hate to say it but patients have to be advocates for their own health care i don't think they should i think the government should step up uh and and source this on their own and work with us um but where we're going to see movement is with patients across the country um you know getting loud getting angry about not having the primary care the quality care that they should have over their lifespan um, and we're seeing some movement on that in BC. Um, we would love to work with patient partners and government partners to design that uh, primary care system, that patient's medical home uh, that is sustainable into the future. Uh, you tell me about that patient's medical home a bit more, because I can understand the concept, but what would it look like compared to what we see now sort of across the country? Yeah. Um, again, there's there's lots of aspects to it, but but what you would see is that you'd uh, be attached to a family uh, medicine practice. Uh, again, it would be a team, so there'd be multiple care providers in there. You wouldn't necessarily see your family physician at every visit, but you'd see the most appropriate uh, uh, person, uh, you know, whether that's a physiotherapist uh, to manage low back pain, um, a nurse uh, for a diabetic uh, a checkup, um, and you'd have access uh, to that team, so you wouldn't have significantly long waits, um, and they would have uh, all of your medical information there and get to know you and your family over time. Um, it need not be more expensive. Um, uh, you can design these teams um, to be more efficient with the healthcare dollars they have. Um, but really, the the big message I would say is it, it uh, you know outside of of uh, remuneration, outside of pay. Uh, family medicine really needs to fight those aspects of burnout that I mentioned. So the administrative burden, uh, proper patients' medical home would let family physicians and their and their healthcare team focus on patient care and not have to deal with a lot of the, the administrative issues. I'm speaking with Dr. Brady Bouchard. He's a Saskatchewan-based family physician and the president of the Canadian College of Family Physicians. We're talking about what appears to be a reluctance uh, for med- medical school graduates uh, to enter into family medicine these days. It certainly is their first choice and how we might be able to encourage more to come in because they are desperately needed. Uh, as we saw with census data yesterday, a lot of people, including family physicians, are uh, are heading towards retirement quickly. Uh, and there just aren't enough people out there to replace them. When we come back, we'll talk a bit more about 
where we might see shortages coming up in the near future and how to address them uh, longer term. We've been talking about some uh, some solutions. Potentially, we'll look at a few more after this. I'm speaking with Dr. Brady Bouchard, a Saskatchewan-based family physician and president of the Canadian College of Family Physicians. Uh, Dr. Bouchard, if, if you were to be able to speak to, to med school grads right now or those about to graduate heading into residency, how would you convince them to enter family medicine these days? Yeah, um, I, I think the, the uh, attractiveness of family medicine uh, the, or the things that have uh, attracted me to family medicine uh, haven't changed the core elements. So that broad scope of practice, being able to look after patients uh, over their lifespan, um, uh, see them at birth, uh, see them at death. Um, that's, that's the rewarding part of family medicine. Uh, and uh, we still try and instill that in our, in our medical learners and our residents. Um, and to be clear, we're still having lots of uh, medical students and residents choose family medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is an attractive career. Uh, I think the the issue is that it's gradually becoming less so because of of those issues. And I imagine there's a certain, if there were flexibility built into the system for you too, because you've spoken a lot about burnout. And, and I'm curious to know, just over the course of the past few years, we've talked a lot about burnout across the medical uh, field, but how has it been for family physicians over the past two years? And, and, and how much of a stretching point are you at right now? Yeah, um, I think the two main issues that I hear from colleagues all the time, and certainly in my own practice, um, one is the paperwork administrative burden, taking work home after a clinic day. Um, and just always having more tasks to complete. Um, on that aspect, we see family physicians choosing to work in environments where they're either well supported for administrative overhead or don't have that overhead. So moving into hospital-based practice, emergency medicine, um, uh, palliative care, you know, other focused practices. Um, so family physicians are, are choosing with their feet that way. Um, the other one is just the, the practicalities of uh, running a family practice when we're short of family physicians. So I think all family physicians feel an obligation um, uh, to look after their patients. They get to know them. They get connected with them. Um, and just like anybody else, we want to take a vacation. And in some parts of the country, that's very difficult to do. It's hard to find locum coverage uh, to cover your clinic, you know, even for a week at a time. Um, and that certainly contributes to burnout. If you're working without a break for years on end uh, and family physicians like others have stepped up uh, throughout the pandemic, um, it's, it's time to take a vacation. Uh, and if they don't have that option, uh, some are choosing early retirement or, or choosing to move into those other areas that, that aren't that longitudinal, uh, care for family or for uh, Canadians. You, you, you're, you're still here. What, what allow, what allows you to get up and do this every single day? What, what, what about, despite the, the, the challenges, the obvious challenges, what about being a family physician, uh, continues to drive you? Yeah, it's it's such a rewarding career. I I don't regret it for a second. I mentioned that um, it's it's really being able to see a patient's health uh, improve over time um, and and developing a relationship with them and getting to know them and their situation and their family, um, understanding the nuances of what they need in their healthcare, uh, and able uh, being able to help them navigate a really complex system. We have more diagnostics than ever before. We have more therapeutic options, more drugs, more treatments available. Um, specialists uh, have become in much of the country harder to get access to. Um, so being it there to help them navigate a system that that I wouldn't want to do uh, without medical training on my own um, uh, is still very rewarding and, and will be into the future. 
I guess the last question for you, when you look at the near term, uh, I know family medicine's talked about all the time now. It feels like everybody talks about not having, a, a lot of people talk about not having family doctor or feeling very lucky if they do. Uh, do you see that getting worse before it gets better? Or do you see signs for some sort of optimism now that people are recognizing uh, that this is in fact a crisis, not, not just for family physicians, but right across the board, but certainly when it comes to family medicine in some areas? Yeah, I, I I see positive signs of government uh, again in BC starting to listen to patients. Uh, really, it's the patients who are going to get uh, movement on this. Uh, family physicians have been uh, talking to government for years at all levels, um, and have got kind of variable buy-in to the idea that family medicine really is the most cost-efficient uh, uh, and best healthcare uh, in our healthcare system. And we we keep patients healthier for longer. Uh, we keep them out of hospital. Um, and certainly the cost of seeing your family physician is less than, you know, the cost of an emergency visit, for example. Um, so really, I, I mean, we need to see government step up and, and start uh, talking with us, start talking with patients as well. Um, and there are some positive trends, uh, but we'll see where that goes across the country. If I want to write my MLA or my MPP, what, what should I be telling them when it comes to family physician? If I don't have a family physician, what should I be telling my, my elected officials about what I want to see? Yeah, you should tell them that you deserve quality care close to home um, and across your lifespan. Uh, there's no reason Canadians shouldn't expect that. Um, we have a public health care system um, that uh, is failing in many respects. Uh, I believe in public health care. I believe in everybody having access without having to pay uh, at the point of use. Um, but we need government investment and smart investment uh, into structuring our health care so patients can have that access. And if they don't have that, they need to be loud about it. Dr. Bouchard, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. I'll confess, I'm a bit of a, a bit obsessed by grocery prices. I often buy things on sale. I like to figure out how much things cost. It's just one of those things. I think it's probably because I'm doing my own grocery since I was about 15 or 16. <clears throat> so I always thought it was really important to figure out how much things were, but you just like to feel like you're getting a deal, right? So every time I see analytics done on grocery prices, I'm thinking, wow, that looks fascinating to me. <clears throat> Excuse me. So one came out today. And if you buy meat of any kind, you'll have noticed, as I do, that prices have really jumped over much of the past year. What's behind the meat counter is just more expensive than it used to be. So are you looking for plant-based alternatives because of that? Well, researchers thought exactly the same thing. So they set out to figure out how do those things compare price-wise, meat and plant-based alternatives. Are you getting a good deal if you try the plant-based alternatives? Is it worth looking at now that meat has become so expensive? And the results, well, you'll pardon the pun, there's certainly something to chew on. Joining me now to discuss the report is Melanie Morrison. She is the president and CEO of BetterCart Analytics. The company gathers data on the prices charged by Canadian grocers for tens of thousands of products. Melanie Morrison, welcome to the show. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me on your show. So I gather, I mean, I think all consumers, if you buy meat, you have noticed just how much the prices have gone up uh, over the last 12 months. We're not imagining that. What, have, what, what in fact, have you seen uh, from your analytical point of view about the jump in the price of meat over the past 12 months? Well, you're absolutely right, Ben. We have seen an increase in meat prices over the last 12 months. And where we're seeing it predominantly is with respect to roasts. So there would be your prime rib roast, your blade roast along those lines, um, followed by um, bacon. So that would be the next um, highest um, 
animal-based protein source that would have experienced the biggest jump. And then uh, thirdly, around the steaks. So your round steak and your sirloin steak. So this would, I imagine that the premise of this study was, was to then look at, at plant-based proteins or plant-based Correct, alternatives, yes. right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. So what we were able to do here, um, my company focuses on the e-grocery or e-commerce uh, data from a variety of retailers across the country and being able to capture all of that data and distill it in a way that um, then is cleaned up. And then we're able to look at it through an analytic lens. Um, so when we have important questions like this and around the protein um, sources and whether it's animal-based or vegetable analog, um, we're able to start looking at some of these differences and how they're, how they're playing out um, in the contemporary climate right now, vis-a-vis pricing, uh, food pricing and differences there. So we set about to explore whether or not animal-based protein sources were um, less expensive or more expensive than the vegetable analog or plant-based alternatives. So you, I imagine you literally went through the pricing of all of them uh, and came up with some conclusions, which I think may have been somewhat surprising. Yes. Well, on the whole, we saw that vegetable analog uh, products were 38% more expensive than your animal-based protein sources. So this was quite a surprise um, to us as a group, as a, as a team here. And then when we're looking at, so that's the overall, but then when we're looking at the pro, you know, pro- provincial um, differences, there's some um, unique findings there. So we're seeing that the discrepancy between your animal-based protein and your uh, plant-based protein or vegetable analog is um, in Ontario and then Saskatchewan. So that's where that discrepancy is the most pronounced. Um, and then where it's least pronounced is Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, followed by Manitoba. So there's some interesting interprovincial um, unique findings here. Did you have? Uh, did you manage to get some insight through this as to why that might be? This is a first step. Um, so mapping out all of this, all of this pricing, um, running these analyses, and then I think what we're going to be able to do is drill more um, concretely into the why behind right. some of these findings here, um, so that we'll be able to. Um, better understand why these differences are emerging. Still 38% is, is a big, is a big number. Um, it is. What was at the basis of, of that? Where, where do those big price differences lie and, and why might it be? <clears throat> so the largest um, differences that we have, that we happen to see is your chicken nuggets, if you will. So we've got the animal-based protein sources versus the vegetable analog um, chicken nuggets. And it's, it's the most pronounced there, sort of 100%, 104% difference uh, between these products. So, um, you know, when we look at this is a, this is a product that is often um, used um, to serve families. Um, lots of children love chicken nuggets. So this is a sizable difference and, and could certainly uh, lend itself to some serious decision making by consumers when um, trying to uh, purchase the vegetable analog form. You also, I imagine, looked at other um, plant-based uh, alternatives, which which are popular, such as burgers, uh, bacon. Yes, uh, and yes. you saw some big discrepancies there too. Yeah, so there's uh, burger patties. Um, you know, there's about a seventy-one percent 
um, the price difference. Seventy-one percent. That's that's 71%. to me that seems that just seems huge. But but yeah, it, absolutely. It does. So you know when we look at these differences, there's you know the chicken nuggets, burger patties, um, also the meals and entrees. So differences there that we would be seeing. And then the one the one area, I mean, ground beef, for instance, is up. Uh, you know, the difference is sixty percent there. Um, so on average, um, there's there's a there's a sizable difference here that we're seeing on these products um, that were listed and that we covered in the report. So that's something of you know that's concerning for sure. Um, and then the one that we didn't was turkey. Right. So turkey slices. So those are actually more economical and um, in the ve- vegetable analog form than they are the animal based. Interesting. The the um, I imagine one of the things, and it was pointed out uh, in the study that, w- that one of the things that can be deceptive sometimes is that the is that oftentimes the plant version uh, comes in smaller packages. So we're, we're, it can be somewhat. You might not notice that you're paying more. Yes, um, that's true. And what we were able to do in our report was actually take the similar sizes. So we were controlling for size across the board when we selected the vegetable analogs, for instance. So we match these up. There's a lot of choice out there in terms of products that are represented at a variety of the uh, major banners across the country. Um, But what we did was we actually um, linked this up by size. So we could control for that in an experimental way, if you will, um, and um, then draw these conclusions. You mentioned um, that this may be, uh, you know, a, a tipping point for some consumers, specifically with the price of groceries going up generally. Uh, mm-hmm. That the high cost of, of these of these products might, in fact, be turning uh, could potentially turn consumers away from them. Yes, that that is a probably one of the largest concerns here. Um, obviously, there are vegetable analog um, products in all of the manufacturers that are doing creating these products for all of the right reasons, you know, um, and in terms of their values and what they're promoting, um, the health and sustainability and environmental um, related issues. And so when you look, though, from the consumer vantage, it's really how they're going to be faring when they see these price increases. So this is a challenge for shoppers um, across the country. Um, you know, when we when we look at that, you know, if they're looking at, at two products, they're similar. Um, you know, and looking at the vegetable analog, and if it is, it is a few more dollars uh, per package for the boat, the same amount, then people are probably going to think twice before selecting that off the shelves. Um, and then as well, it's hard for some consumers certainly to take that leap to try a new product that is a vegetable analog, for instance, they don't know what it might taste like, they don't know um, you know, uh, how that will fare with their, with themselves or their families and so on. And so just being hesitant then to try it initially. So the lack of familiarity may be playing a role as well in conjunction with the pricing. What other conclusions did the report come up with just in terms of, because obviously there's been a lot of talk over the past few years, at least from a lot of big companies in the food business about trying to get consumers to buy more plant-based products. Um, it seems to me that where part of the problem lies is they're trying to recreate meat. And that seems to be a, a, a bit of the, at least what the way you looked at it, it seems to be a bit of the problem here. Yes. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, in terms of that, um, the intention behind the companies obviously is sustainability, environmental, um, you know, related issues there that, that they'd be bringing to the public. Um, 
But sometimes consumers are, are, can be a little confused about it. Sometimes they can't be, you know, it depends. Um, I think the, the jury's out though, whether or not we're going to see an increase in the consumer numbers that are, are moving toward plant-based in the future. Certainly there's a lot of support around the development of plant-based or vegetable analog products. Um, so we could see more on the market, but I think it's going to be incumbent upon the manufacturers of these products to really double down in terms of making their presence known um, and really educating the public about what is in the products and how they're going to taste fantastically. And then, and then, um, you know, try uh, to the best of their ability to offset that, that elevated cost per, per product. Right. Because when you read between the lies right now, really what you're seeing is that these items are essentially still luxury items to some extent for the average Canadian family. Yes. And I think there is certainly um, a swath of people, you know, the mass, uh, the majority here that would view it that way. And so that could be part of the retail shelving, you know, that they just do not stop by and do not look at and explore. Um, so they may be attracted if there's a sales sticker there, you know, that may move the consumer, turn their card around and leave back. But, but nevertheless, um, I think it's really going to be the, you know, um, important for, uh, these corporations to, to look strategically at how they can make these products accessible for your everyday consumer. So quickly, Melanie, what, what do you do with the data now? What do we do with the data now? So we, we will have this, these are queries that we can always run and we can continually update them. Um, we have in our data store over 3 billion products. And so we um, pull in about 28 million new pricing records weekly. So there's a continual, um, there's a massive opportunity here to start answering these questions that the public have in place and to be using our data for good here to um, better inform people and, um, you know, answer these important questions in the minds of Canadian consumers. Melanie Morrison, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Ben. Well, last month marked 11 years since the beginning of the revolution in Syria to end decades of rule by the Assad family and the violent crackdown, civil war and refugee crisis that ensued. The plight of those caught up in the conflict is the subject of a documentary called Batata, or Potato, uh, set to debut this weekend at the Hot Docs Festival in Toronto. Here's a snippet. The Free Syrian Army say government forces backed by Hezbollah fighters have taken control of the town close to the Lebanese border. <laughs> As the war continues, the number of refugees increases, straining already tight resources in neighboring countries like Lebanon, Jordan, Turkey, and Iraq. There's almost nothing conventional about the war in Syria. That is a bit of the trailer of Batata, which will uh, 
be shown at the Hot Docs Festival in Toronto over the weekend. It is the work of Toronto-based Lebanese-Syrian filmmaker Nura Kavorkian, who set out in 2009 to document the lives of Syrian farmers working on a potato farm in Lebanon's Baqa Valley, including Maria, uh, the central character, and which winds up telling the story of families, communities, an entire country, really, thrown into the turmoil of a conflict that we've watched from around the world now for more than a decade. And joining me now is Nora Kevorkian. Congratulations on the film, and thank you for being here tonight. Thank you, Ben. Glad to be here. You know, it, it's it's amazing when you watch how a documentary comes together, and I realize what you sort of set out to do. This was a, a, an area that's very close to your heart, very close to your family. Um, tell me a bit about the inspiration for the 2009 documentary that you set out to make? Um, I always wanted to make a documentary um, to delve into the topic of the tension, uh, like uh, and dislike between the two Arab nations that I call home, Lebanon and Syria, two Arab countries that are bordering and they have a common history, language, but they kind of don't get along. Um, I felt this tension growing up in Lebanon, uh, especially during the Lebanese Civil War, through the politics. And I also felt it because I'm very close to both countries. Uh, My mom is Syrian. I was born in Syria. My dad is Lebanese. And we had relatives and people coming. So I wanted to discuss this topic, but in a way that was not very political. So when I met Maria, this vibrant, charismatic Syrian woman who came every year from Syria with her entire family to work in the fields of Lebanon for a Lebanese Christian landowner, it was just a perfect setting. So that's how Bataza started in 2009. It is. I mean, I've watched the trail. I mean, it is, it is. Maria is a vibrant character, and it is that that idea that that her uh, that Musa, uh, the farm owner um, who's a Lebanese Christian, uh, as well, gets along so well with this family, and you sort of really showed that the humanity that exists as well as as the the divisions that have existed over the years. I gather that all of a sudden everything changes in 2011 with the revolution. The story you set out to tell uh, becomes something much different than I imagine you would have you would have anticipated how did how did you how did you live through that um it was surprising to us all when the revolution started but because living in the middle east all of us were used to problems we kind of assumed that it was going to end within five six months because in the past syria had always crushed revolutionaries so we thought this is it but when 2012 happened and actually turned to full-on civil war uh, I knew that this was something different. And by that time, I'd already spent uh, a long, several years uh, investing my time and getting to know all these characters and have relationships with them. I had invested a lot that I wasn't able to stop filming. And I thought this would be an interesting film to continue and see what will happen next. But I never imagined it was going to be 10 years. Like right now, we're in the 13th year of the film. It's, you know, from 2009. Yes, I filmed them for 10 years, but then there was the post production editing and all that. So I never ever imagined that this would happen. And then it goes from being a civil war. And then I, I gather Maria's from Raqqa. So then, then it becomes a story about ISIS as well, the ongoing civil war. And then, and then, and then the refugee, I mean, it, it is an incredible 
telling of a story that we've all watched happen from afar through the eyes of one group of people. And it, it must have been, how did you, I mean, all these different chapters that happened, how did you manage to sort of weave them into this story? Because so much happened in the last decade in Syria. Exactly. Because it was such a long period of time, uh, it was a very big challenge for me to decide what story to follow, who to follow. There were so many people that I cared for because I was based, I was there on the ground um, meeting all these people who were escaping Syria and coming to Lebanon, the main character and her uh, uncles and aunts. And I witnessed everything from the beginning being on the ground. Um, it was hard to decide who not, whose story not to include. And that was the big challenge for me. Um, so I tried to weave a story together that was very real, very objective, very humane. And I tried to put everything that could happen that happened in 10 years in a way that would be exciting for the audiences to watch. And so it wouldn't be just a story of sad story after sad story. So I, there's a lot of Wed, there's weddings in it, births, life, you know, uh, everything that happens in decade. It's a piece of life that everyone feels. So um, initially the film that I caught as an editor uh, ended up to be four hours long because I was so attached to my characters, I didn't want to cut out anyone's life out of the story. And then we brought in an editor to help me bring it down to two hours because I just was so attached to every frame. I think anyone who's ever done anything and nothing, I've never done anything to the scale and the time that you've done. We're all so attached to the stories of the people we meet because we feel like we owe them something because we're telling exactly. um, their tale. Um, exactly. Yeah. What was it like just for the people that you had met, because their lives changed so fundamentally. You st it starts off as a story about migrant farmers sort of coming from Syria into Lebanon each summer, sort of a ritual almost, to do this work. And then all of a sudden, everything just falls apart. Uh, what was it like for the people who you featured? What, was it, what were their lives like? And how did you manage to stay in touch? How did you manage to go back to them each year? Um. I think, you know, the only way this film was going to be made is with just pure, pure determination and so much love because it was very challenging for me to leave behind my young family, my children. In fact, my, my daughter was eight weeks old when I started this journey. So to leave them here a year in, year out and go two, three times a year, two, three months every time to spend there in, in the camp, I felt that I had two lives and uh, I had two families, my family in Canada and then all these refugees that I cared for. And over time, we experienced everything together. Uh, even though I was capturing everything on the camera behind the lens, I was kind of absorbing their lives like a sponge, their, their trauma, their difficulties. So it was a journey for us together, all of us. And, um, you know, I still keep in touch with them. I speak with Maria, her parents, her brothers, everyone in the camp. I keep in touch, and we and I know what's happening there. Yes, the film is finally finished. It's touring the festivals around the world, uh, and I'm so excited about hot dogs. Uh, but for me, the journey is not finished because I still know what's going on. <laughs> I'm so attached to them. 
and I it must have been yeah it must have been so difficult to come I mean to be both those people to be the documentary maker living in the middle of all these upheavals happening a world away and then to come back to Toronto and, and have your family and and just try to balance those two lives exactly see I wasn't because it started as a film about one thing and changed to another I wasn't prepared emotionally and psychologically to deal with all the challenges and the traumas that that occurred over the years. And I suffered from a lot of guilt, uh, being able for guilt because I did exactly that. I stayed with them. I experienced their lives. But then I left. I came to Canada and I had a family. I had all the great luxuries we have here that we take for granted, like running water, hot water. You know, we have toilets. You know, it's so different than the camp where, you know, it's muddy, it's cold, the open sewage, all that. So I was feeling guilty that I could leave. And that really ate away at me. And uh, I'm still kind of recovering from all that emotional and and difficult states that I went through. I'm speaking with Nora Kevorkian, a uh, Lebanese-Syrian filmmaker in Toronto, Toronto-based, about her film, Batata, which really is a 12-year odyssey through, uh, or a 10-year odyssey, really, through the lives of, that begins as a film about, about a group of Syrian migrant workers who go to Lebanon each year to farm, and then really becomes a, a whole chronology of all that happened in Syria over the past decade. After this, uh, we'll talk a bit about, you wrote an op-ed op for the Globe and Mail talking about how you want your film to remind people not to forget about the Marias and her community and all those who've had to flee Syria um, in the last decade. And we'll get to that right after this. I'm speaking with Toronto-based Lebanese-Syrian filmmaker Nura Kevorkian about her film Batata, which uh, started out as a film about uh, migrant workers from Syria working in Lebanon uh, and, and then became a story really about all that's happened to Syria and Syrians over the last 10 years through uh, both a revolution, then a civil war, um, then, a re then a refugee crisis, and, and continues to this day. I was thinking during the break, Nura, that, that your daughter was eight months old when you started. She's a teenager now. <laughs> That's right. We will celebrate her 13th birthday soon. <laughs> oh, congratulations. What, what does your family think of this? I mean, they, 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 they in some ways sacrificed you to this incredible project. Uh, what do they think of the finished product? Um, well, my children haven't seen the film yet, and we are right. all excited that uh, they're going to see it in two days at Hot Dogs. Right. So everyone's looking forward for that. <laughs> That'll be great. Um, yeah. You wrote an interesting op-ed in the Globe and Mail recently talking a bit about what you would like people to, to take from your film, not just the story itself, but also a reminder of what's happened, what continues to happen. You mentioned earlier that Maria, I, I gather, is still in a refugee camp uh, in, in right. Lebanon. What would you like people to know about? What would you like people to take away from this beyond just the story of, of this woman and, and, and the different things that happened in the last 10 years? Well, you know, this year is the 10th anniversary of the Syrian refugee crisis. So, and 11 years since the revolution started. And Maria and 6 million other Syrians are still displaced and they're not able to return home. Um, 
sadly, war and forced migration, it's kind of a commonplace right now. We have the Ukrainians before that. We have the Armenians of Artsakh war. Before that, we have the Afghanis. So I understand that there's a lot of displacement going on around the world and that we need to help everyone. Um, and I just want uh, all of us to remember that the Syrians are still there. Ten years is a very long time to live in a tent in the cold and the mud and hopeless despair, not knowing if there's any hope of ever returning home. Um, on my uh, conversations with, with this group of uh, refugees, um, my, the, the characters in my film, I hear them kind of breaking. They don't have the strength anymore to hope. And, and it's really taking a toll on them. There's one million Syrian refugees just in the back of Valley in Lebanon. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because uh, I, I wanted to, I was thinking about that as you spoke, uh, that you've, you've kept in touch with them. And over this time, how their attitude towards what's happened may have changed. And I guess you were alluding to it there that they have become increasingly reconciled, I suppose, to life never being the same again to some extent. Exactly. Some of them, most of them are now accepting that fact. And with that comes this feeling of giving up hope about life, taking losing joy, uh, you know, it, it's kind of a, a sense of being uh, emotionally distraught and uh, depression. It, it's really commonplace. And uh, the sad part is for me seeing all those children uh, that you see in the film and lots of children in the camps that I witnessed seeing them grow up without any schooling, any education. And now they are very sad teenagers. They know that they don't have a homeland. Um, they have no future. They have no education. Um, they're not wanted in any country. I mean, it's a really difficult situation. And we know, of course, that we talked about this on the show a few weeks ago about the situation right now in the Middle East and North Africa, including in Lebanon, specifically in Lebanon, where the economy is in terrible trouble. Uh, the cost of, of, of basic goods has skyrocketed. And I read one quote somewhere that said that if, the Le if people in Lebanon are feeling the pain of this, just imagine what it's like for the Syrian refugees there. Exactly. Lebanon is basically broken right now, politically, economically, and banking system has collapsed, hyperinflation. You know, I have family in Lebanon, and I know how difficult it is. They are buying uh, heating oil by the gallon. You know, uh, as soon as it runs out, they have to go get more. There's no medication. So they're all suffering. Lebanon was already kind of a problematic country with, with accepting so many Syrians, the highest per capita in the world. Um, it kind of affected and accelerated the downfall. And both groups now, Lebanese and Syrian, are suffering. I, I was Your name is an allusion to it, but, but your family too knew displacement at once, and Lebanon was their sanctuary back when. That's right. That's right. Uh, my heritage is Armenian, and my both my father's family and my mother's family uh, were uh, grandparents were survivors of the Armenian genocide that was committed by the Ottoman Turks in 1915, the first genocide of the 20th century. So they were both old children. They had survived and ended up in orphanages. So um, my dad grew up in a refugee camp in Lebanon, where he was born. Um, and that that city still uh, exists now and has the name 
quarantina, which is the bastardized word from quarantine, where all the refugees right. take. So it's part of part of my my heritage too. You know, I'm a descendant of refugees, of war and genocide, and so I kind of feel that it's my responsibility now that I have the opportunity to learn about uh, to help all these refugees and tell their stories. I took that as a very serious responsibility. When can we, I know that we can see your film online. Um, when will we be able to see your film in Toronto? The premiere, I understand, is on Saturday. That's right. That's right. And then Hot Dog has, has uh, um, programmed it again on May the 6th at Tiff Lightbox. And they also have online uh, for people who can see it, I believe, across Canada. Well, Nurek Kavorkian, thank you so much for your time. It's a fascinating story. It's a fascinating film. It's one of those remarkable projects that started off as something and became something very different just because history is history and the world works in strange ways and you happen to be there to witness all of it. Congratulations. Uh, And and congratulations on on a four-hour project that became a two-hour project as well. (laughs) Thank you very much, Ben. Well, the future of hydrogen has been front and center in Edmonton this week. Thousands turned out for a convention in the Alberta capital, a fitting place, of course, for the first Canadian hydrogen convention. The province produces millions of tons of hydrogen each year. Here's Alberta Premier Jason Kenney at the conference earlier this week. We're gathered here today to talk about the future of hydrogen uh, in this province and across Canada and to announce, as I will later, a new centre to support Made in Alberta Energy Solutions to grow Alberta's share of the future multi-trillion dollar global hydrogen industry. All of you in this room recognize the huge potential of hydrogen, obviously. You are amongst the world's leaders uh, in the field, and you're setting the stage for years of future prosperity by being here at the first Canadian Hydrogen Convention. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney at the first Canadian Hydrogen Convention, speaking a little earlier this week in Edmonton. Well, there's nothing new about hydrogen, of course, but there's a huge push these days to try and overcome the pitfalls of the past. If you listen to many, it is the fuel of the future, uh, which will help lower greenhouse gas emissions. The International Energy Agency says it will be key to helping reach net zero by 2050. So lots of promise, but what are the hurdles still in place? What is the hype? What's reality? Joining me now to discuss all of this are Heather Campbell, who's Executive Director of Alberta Innovates Clean Resources, and David Lazell, who's the Energy Systems Architect with Transition Accelerator, Professor and Director of Canadian Energy Systems Analysis Research Initiative at the University of Calgary. Welcome to you both. Great to be here. Thanks so much, Ben, for having me. Indeed. Heather, tell me a bit about this about this new Alberta Hydrogen Centre of Excellence announced this week. I gather you will have something to do with it. I do. Uh, thanks very much, Ben. Um, from my role as Executive Director with Clean Technology with uh, Alberta Innovate, um, we will be operating um, what's called the Hydrogen Centre of Excellence. And the Hydrogen Centre of Excellence is an opportunity for Alberta to support technology, innovation, research, 
to close the technology gap so that we can actually deliver a hydrogen economy for Alberta by 2020, uh, 2030 rather. Um, it's an opportunity for us to be able to demonstrate technologies um, with our subsidiary CIFR and Innotech, uh, do the validation, testing, piloting uh, work, um, support innovation programs so that technology developers, researchers, industry, um, stakeholders and other partners are able to participate in what's going to be an exciting hydrogen economy for Alberta. Uh, hydrogen is one of those pieces that really uh, helps with Alberta's decarbonization efforts, and it's a substantial pathway to, for us to net towards net zero. David Lazell, I was going to ask you the same question. It must have been an interesting conference this week to have so many people in the same room talking about the same stuff. Um, but I mean, we hear a lot of the hype, obviously. I read it. Uh, it's exciting. Uh, how realistic is it? And what are the barriers that are still in the way to seeing some of these uh, big promises come true? Well, I think it's got a, a huge potential, especially for Alberta. We we already produce two-thirds of all the hydrogen that's produced in Canada is produced in this province. Uh, and it's, it's produced here because it's some of the lowest-cost hydrogen that one can make in the world. And um, because we have low-cost natural gas, and if you want to make it the hydrogen without greenhouse gas emissions, which is really the focus of, of the new discussions around hydrogen, uh, then we actually have the geological formations that, uh, that can hold that car, the carbon dioxide that is the byproduct of hydrogen production from natural gas. And, but the real, yeah, you know, the, the, the hype of it or the, the, the real interest and enthusiasm is, that, um, is to expand the use of hydrogen from its current use as an industrial feedstock to include uh, two other possible market opportunities. One is to use hydrogen as a fuel itself to drive big trucks and buses and trains to heat our homes and to uh, even to generate electricity. Uh, and and th- that could help us to uh, tremendously reduce the greenhouse gas emissions in the country, still tap into our fossil fuel resources in Alberta and in and other parts of Canada, but actually create a zero-emission, climate-friendly energy carriers or fuels to drive our economy. And of course, the, and the third opportunity for, for hydrogen is to export it, to export it uh, perhaps to the United States through pipelines or overseas, perhaps as ammonia, uh, another version. And, they can be, and there's lots of countries in the world that are very interested in, in essentially um, hydrogen or versions of hydrogen that can be uh, imported, but that don't generate greenhouse gas emissions when they consume them. How far away are we from some of those things becoming a reality? Because you read the announcements about, uh, I know there was one this week at the conference about uh, the convention, rather, about Edmonton Airport and vehicles there. How far away are we from seeing a lot this stuff become much more uh, common? Well, I think we're, we're extremely uh, close. Many of the uh, the vehicles already exist, uh, they, for example, they already have Mirai cars from Toyota, and there was actually one on display. Uh, and there are a number of those um, those vehicles running on the roads in Vancouver and also in Quebec City, uh, obviously in small numbers now. Uh, but there's the real opportunity, I think, for, for hydrogen economy is, is the trucks and trains and buses. Uh, this summer, there's going to be two hydrogen fuel cell buses in Alberta. Uh, in Edmonton and the Edmonton Strathcona area, and they'll be um, in trials, but also then uh, on for long-term 
running of those vehicles, uh, and you know they can be commercially purchased today. Um, hydrogen trucks can also be can also be bought within the next year. They're going to be available in North America. I would actually also add in. I would also add in there, Ben. Sure. Um, when we look at the entire um, supply chain of the hydrogen economy, from production, storage, transport, carrier, uh, market end use, um, there are a number of technologies that are already commercial and producing, and there are a number of technologies which we are attempting to bring um, to close that technology gap and bring those uh, to commercialization through the center of excellence. Um, and it's it's not just about uh, the technology and that commercialization of the, the the straight technology. There's also the regulatory innovation and the market innovation. So uh, David was talking about um, geological storage of CO2, the byproduct from um, the current ma- manner in which we produce hydrogen. But if we're looking also at hydrogen storage in geological formations, we need to do. We need to develop the regulatory processes and rules of the game to be able to store hydrogen in geological formation. We also now already store other products in geological formation. So now, do we create um, market innovation to to allow us to create that competitive landscape for geological storage of hydrogen? So it's um, yeah. it's a full scope innovation. Yeah, I, I, David, I think at one point you sort of mentioned it being having to sort of build something from the ground up in some ways. I mean, I know that the, the sort of the, the expertise, the skilled staff are there, the workers are there, uh, the the impetus is there. Uh, but it is it is still has to be like no one has, as I was reading a quote today, nobody has a package to sell anyone yet. That's true. Not the whole package. And and as just as Heather said, you know, we have we have some really key pieces that we can get started uh, but to really get it to scale and to get the economics so it works in uh, in not only in Alberta but across Canada and North America, uh, what we need to do is, is some more innovation. And and um, as Heather said, it's market innovation, uh, it's regulatory innovation, and there's also uh, some real value of new technologies, new hard technologies that can reduce the cost, um, especially when you're thinking about reducing the cost of producing and using hydrogen. Uh, within not in the current role of it being as an industrial feedstock, but being as a fuel, as an energy carrier that's going to support the economy, that's a different application for hydrogen that doesn't exist now. now. And we need a, a whole new value chain that links the supply to the demand through really efficient movement and uh, and um, uh, you know trading of 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 the commodity. So. And that's that's the kind of thing that I think this this uh, funding from the Alberta government is gonna is going to uh, really help to accelerate and and hopefully we can uh, we can be a real leader in the deployment of this kind of uh, a new energy system within the next uh, next few years. Heather, I was going to ask you because there's been some. We were obviously I was reading an article this week about uh, about German representatives coming here, really interested in Canadian hydrogen because, of course, they're facing energy crises of their own when it comes to supply from Russia and also their desire to hit net zero like everybody else. Uh, you, you must be encouraged, at least by what you're seeing out there in terms of appetite. What needs to be done to make sure that Alberta gets to be at the forefront of it? Because we know regulatory wise, it can be difficult. The, the focus is really on carbon intensity. That's the conversation. And that's why we're doing it. This is really about our behaviors and our values 
that are going to help us achieve net zero and uh, decarbonize our energy sector and be able to provide energy access, energy equity, energy independence, energy affordability for the full plurality of Albertans. Um, this is a this is a global challenge. Um, the energy transition isn't something that um, we're we're looking at independently. Um, when we talk about an export market in Al- from Alberta, um, that includes that includes mostly Asian markets. We need to figure out how we're going to create that and how we're going to get there. That's part of the work that we'll be looking at um, with the with the Hydrogen Center of Excellence. But in terms of um, our German our German uh, friends, and there were twenty international delegations at the the hydrogen uh, the hydrogen convention, um, and it's about it's about sharing technologies. Um, when we when we attend uh, events like COP twenty six and eventually COP twenty seven in in Egypt, these these are. These are conversations where there's an opportunity for us to share technologies, to share learning, um, to align our nomenclature around uh, climate change solutions and align our strategies um, around hydrogen. So when we think about uh, areas like uh, commercial and residential heating and blending of hydrogen into natural gas streams, that's something that's already happening in Europe and that we're at the burgeoning forefront of here in, in Alberta, uh, there's much for us to learn from the Germans, and there's much for the Germans to learn from us. I'm speaking with Heather Campbell, the Executive Director of Alberta Innovates, Clean Resources, and David Lazell, Professor and Director of the Canadian Energy Systems Analysis Research Initiative at the University of Calgary. After this, we'll talk about some of the criticisms we've seen this week, uh, specifically from Ottawa, uh, about some of the federal government plans around just how effective or how much uh, hydrogen can help us cut back greenhouse gas emissions. We'll get to that after this. We're talking hydrogen this half hour. There was a big uh, convention, the first Canadian hydrogen convention in Edmonton this week, gathering together thousands of people from around the world to talk about this very hot topic, if you'll forgive the pun. Um, Heather Campbell is the Executive Director of Alberta Innovates, Clean Resources, and David Lazell is the Professor professor and Director of the Canadian Energy Systems Analysis Research Initiative at the University of Calgary. Uh, I, I, I couldn't help but notice some criticism this week, at least of the federal um sort of the, the federal estimates about just how much we can cut greenhouse gas emissions through the use of hydrogen this week. Uh, Jerry DeMarco, he's the Commissioner of the Environment and Sustainable Development, so, sort of suggested that maybe the federal plans weren't even credible because they were so ambitious, at least Natural Resources Canada's projected emissions. Uh, what do you make of that? Do we ha- Is there still work to be done in getting our messaging in line or does it matter from where you sit whether the federal government has its numbers a bit confused? David Lazell, I suppose I'll ask you. Yeah, do you want, do you want me to start <laughs> with that? Yeah, sure. sorry about that. Sure, I mean, sorry about the that. Fo- the, the focus that we have, at, at, that I've been having at the, in CSER at the University of Calgary and with the Transition Accelerator, is to focus on how we're going to meet our 2050 emissions. Uh, and, and uh, you know, when you actually look at getting to net zero by 2050, there's not, there's not that, you know, the things that we need to do are not, thousands and millions of things you can actually probably count them on the fingers of your two hands right and you were talking and and hydrogen is one of those things it's a very important one i would say probably the most important is electrification as an Uh improving electrification as an energy carrier but hydrogen is a as an energy carrier for uh for 
uh, energy services that not easily electrified, like big trucks and you know even space heating, and uh, where where it's really a challenge because of the seasonal variations in it, and and that's where their hydrogen has a major role. Uh, I'm not sure what went behind the government's models, all of the analysis behind that. I do know that that uh, certainly the size of the magnitude uh, of the of a role for hydrogen is probably in the range of 20 to 25, even 30 percent of the energy end use uh, by 2050. And that, and to, but to get there, one needs to build new value chains, new energy systems, and we need to build them from scratch, more or less. So that's going to take a while. And when you have transitions of that scale, they tend to not occur instantaneously there is a usually long period of small you know it's, it's like introducing any transformative technology whether you think about cell phones or uh, you know microwave ovens in the past etc where it's you know, slowly increase you get one two three percent of market share and then when you get four or five percent all of a sudden you're starting to produce um, the products and you get the systems running so that they can actually grow very quickly and that's kind of the phase we're in now. We're in Heather that Campbell, slow phase trying to get up. Heather Campbell, Hi. the last few minutes, the last 90 seconds, do you hear uh, lots of momentum this week? You must be at least encouraged by what you saw. I am extremely hopeful. I'm excited. Um, this, is, this is what we learned during the pandemic. Um, this is a piece of work uh, with the Center of Excellence and with the Hydrogen Convention and my immense thanks to Dr. Lozelle, who was one of the, the driving forces behind the convention and having this hydrogen conver- conversation in Canada and specifically in Edmonton. But I think about the pandemic and I think about the impact of the pandemic on women, on people of color, and those who live the intersectional realities of those descriptors. And when I think about hydrogen and clean technology and the opportunity it presents, this is our opportunity to build back better. And when I think about better, for me, that's more inclusive. Our pathway to net zero is with the participation of Indigenous communities who are looking to also deliver their environmental performance and their prosperity. Heather Campbell and David Lazell, thank you so much for shedding some light on what was obviously a very interesting week in Edmonton. Look forward to hearing more about it. Thank you so much and well said, Heather. Oh, thanks very much, David. Take care, Ben.